Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Again, pay careful attention, for these are God's words. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word before us today, and we pray that as we meditate on your word, it would accomplish its purpose in us, that we would have great joy in your Son, Jesus Christ, and you would transform us to his image and his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, how are you this morning? Good. That's a polite greeting that we use with one another. I think I've asked that question at least four or five times to a few of you this morning already. And the standard answer that Americans give is exactly what you just told me. Good. We're good. When we want to know how things are going, we ask each other, how are you or or, how's it going? But when you answer that question, what is it that flashes through your mind? In other words, what do you use to evaluate how things are going? What do you use to evaluate how you're doing? Is it your job, how things are going at work, or your health? Is it the attitude of your children? When you, when you answer that things are going well, what do you use to evaluate that? The Philippians have sent Epaphroditus to Paul because they want to know how things are going with Paul in his Roman imprisonment. And as Paul moves from his opening benediction and prayer to the body of the letter that we have before us today, Paul updates the Philippians on his conditions under Roman house arrest and his prospects for release. That's verses 12 through 26. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. How is, what are his conditions like in prison? And then next, next time we're in Philippians, we'll consider verses 18 through 26, his prospects for release. But the dominant attitude that Paul confesses to the Philippians is that he is full of joy. And he wants them to be full of joy too. Notice in verse 18, he says, I rejoice, yes, and I will 
rejoice. And even as he prays for them in verse 4, he says that his prayers for them are full of joy. He tells them in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. And in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Paul rejoices in his circumstances and he wants the Philippians to likewise rejoice in their circumstances. But friends, I want you to notice that the joy in Paul's life is not actually tied to his circumstances. If Paul's joy was related to his circumstances, then Paul would not have any joy. If Paul's joy was indexed to his possessions, he wouldn't have any joy because at this point in his life, he has no possessions. He's entirely dependent on people like Epaphroditus to bring him food and money even for his rent. If Paul's joy was tied to his freedom, he wouldn't have any joy. He is bound 24 hours a day in rotation to guards. He can't eat, sleep, drink anything without being bound to a Roman soldier and leave his place of residence. If his joy was tied to a good reputation, he would not have any joy because Paul was despised by many people. Paul's joy is related to something completely different than his circumstances. Paul's joy is related to knowing Christ and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. If you want to have the joy of the Lord, no matter your circumstances, then you need to begin to evaluate how things are going and how you're doing the same way that Paul does. So let's look at these verses in more detail. Paul updates them in, in this section on his imprisonment, and yet the first piece of news that Paul shares about his circumstances has nothing to do with the aggravation of his chains or the quality of his food or his living quarters. Instead, he assures the Philippians that his imprisonment, far from sidelining his efforts, has actually furthered the cause of the gospel. Look there in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. From outward appearances, the months and days and years in Roman custody, at this point Paul has spent two years in Roman custody in uh, Judea and now in Rome, it would seem like a complete setback to Paul's missionary calling. And yet Paul's chains, he says, have become the very instrument for furthering the gospel. God often uses what we would least expect to further the cause of Christ. We can think about any number of examples of God using what we would least expect, including Paul himself, a persecutor of the church, and now his chains. We might even think of the preacher John Bunyan. Most of us know John Bunyan as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. But prior to writing Pilgrim's Progress, he was known as a powerful preacher. His preaching was so powerful that the established Church of England, which didn't have much um, esteem for the Puritans, put him in jail in order to try to silence him. But in his jail cell, he would 
preach at the top of his voice so that his voice would carry over the walls of the jail and people would flock to the walls of the jail in order to hear him preach. Undeterred, they finally silenced him by putting him down inside the jail and finding a place where no one could hear his voice. And that is where he had the freedom to write many books like Pilgrim's Progress. They thought they could silence the preacher, but instead they gave him an opportunity to write that which has preached to millions and millions and millions of people all the way down through the current age. Many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. There's over, I think, 130 versions of Pilgrim's Progress out there. And this is how it is. You cannot bottle up the gospel The servant of God may be bound like John or like Paul, but the word of God, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, cannot be bound. When he wrote to the church in Rome five years earlier, Paul expressed eagerness to come to the city and strengthen the church there. He said that he prayed in the Lord, it says in chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 10, that he might come to the Roman church and impart some spiritual gift, be encouraged by them, and raise money and go on to Spain. He wanted to come to Rome in God's will. And a few years later, he made it to Rome in God's will, but not in the way that he thought. Paul made it not only to that city, but to the very center of the imperial power chained to Roman guards, awaiting trial before Caesar. I'm sure there were Christians in the Roman church at the time praying, Lord, help us to reach our people. Help us to reach those in power. Help us to have an impact on our society. Help us get the gospel to the hard-to-reach places. And the Lord, in his wonderful wisdom, made the whole palace guard captive to Paul while he evangelized all of them. We can trust God's purposes for us, even when we do not yet fully understand them. Because we know from Paul's life, from John's life, that God uses things that are weak and despised, like Paul's chains, or even the very cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was killed as a common criminal because they wanted to silence him. But in his very death, he defeated sin and death and Satan, and he became the means of salvation for any who trust in him. In trying to silence him by means of execution and the cross, they only furthered the salvation of the world. And we learn that God may be using the things that have happened to you, just as he did with Paul to advance his kingdom. Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel in two ways. He notes them there. You can see them beginning in verse 13. He says, It has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. One way his imprisonment has advanced to the cause of Christ is that the entire palace guard that rotation of soldiers chained to Paul 24 hours of day have come to know that he is in Christ. 
Paul's construction there is interesting. He could have said that my chains were for Christ, but he doesn't use that construction. He says that my chains are in Christ. Or even alternately, it could be rendered that my chains in Christ have become manifest to the guards and to all the rest. And this points to the integrity of Paul's witness and the power from which it flows. See, in Christ is one of Paul's favorite phrases throughout the epistles. It's how he expresses the profound reality of our union with Jesus. In Ephesians, he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ, that he has made us alive together with Christ, and in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Not that Christ is doing things for us out there, that is true, but that he's doing things for us in union with him. All of our salvation can be encompassed in the idea that we are united with the eternal Son of God. So Paul is deeply aware that his imprisonment is not only because of his ministry for Christ, but because of his union with him. It is part of his fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus. As he says in chapter 3, verse 10, flip over, you'll see, he says, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul wanted his entire life, Paul knew that his entire life was conformed to Christ because of his union with Christ. He wanted to be conformed to the resurrection of Jesus, but he knew that in order to do that, he needed to be conformed to Jesus, to his life, to his ministry, to his death on the cross, to his burial, and yes, to his resurrection. And you see how that that completely interprets for Paul the way he sees his imprisonment and his sufferings. They're part of his union with Jesus. He even tells the Corinthians in another letter to imitate me as I imitate Christ. In God's providence, the readings for our family devotions lately have been going through the second half of the book of Acts, which is, which is really the background for Philippians and Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, these prison epistles. So beginning in Acts 16, where we picked up in Acts 16, we saw the founding of the church in Philippi. If you read all the way through the end of Acts, it chronicles the journey of how Paul went from starting the church in Philippi to being here in Roman jail, where we get our letter. And one of the most fascinating things to me as we've been reading through story after story in, life, in Paul's life is how much Paul is just like Jesus in that he is constantly being vindicated by the governing authorities and yet still suffering for the advance of the kingdom. These two things go hand in hand in every stop-off that Paul has. The, the governing authorities vindicate him, and then he suffers mightily, and then the kingdom blows up. A church is planted, or there's a riot, and many people come to Christ. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Just before he leaves for Rome, King Agrippa renders this verdict after hearing Paul's case. He says in Acts 26, 31, This man has done nothing deserving of death or chains. And where is Paul right now as we're reading Philippians? He's chained to a Roman guard, 
awaiting the outcome of his trial where he might be executed. How similar is that to what Pilate said of Jesus in Luke 23, verse 22? He says, I have found no reason for death in him. And yet right after this pronouncement, where does Jesus go? He goes to the cross in order to accomplish our salvation. Paul is just like our Lord. And it's not just Agrippa. After the earthquake, freedom from the Philippian jail, Paul forced the city magistrates to come and vindicate him and apologize and escort him out of the city. When he was in Corinth, the Jews accused Paul of persuading people to worship God against the Roman law, but the proconsul dismisses the case. In Ephesus, it was the governor's who calmed down the rioting crowd. Paul preaches in Ephesus. There's a, there's a riot as people come to the Lord and the worshipers of Artemis are um, angered. And it was the governors who came and calmed down the crowd. And then they gave him a place to defend himself and then leave peacefully. All of the pagan rulers realized that the charges against Paul were fabricated. And in, li- in this, he's like the Lord he served, whom Pilate realized immediately was delivered up to him because of envy, it says in Matthew twenty seven eighteen. What's the point? How is Paul to interpret his constant vindication on one hand and his constant suffering on the other hand by the same authorities? He says it there in verse 13. My chains are in Christ. Paul knows that he is not a prisoner of the Romans, but a bondservant of Christ. And therefore, his life, his entire life, will be conformed to the image of Christ. His chains, he says, are serving not Rome's purpose, but Christ's. And amazingly, Paul reports that the guards who are with him have had the exact, they've come to interpret his captivity in the exact same way. These soldiers who were with him for 24 hours a day saw his fervent prayers like we saw last time in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. They heard all the dictated letters like Philippians or Ephesians, Colossians. They saw the true and abiding affection from faraway visitors like Epaphroditus who came to minister to Paul's need. And most importantly, they saw Paul's unfeigned joy and they came to know that the only explanation for this prisoner's life really was his union with Christ. All the rest in that verse probably refers to Caesar's household. Paul amazingly ends the letter by saying in chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Paul's witness has reached through the imperial guard into the imperial palace Itself, There are now believers in Caesar's household. This is the power of the testimony of a joyful life under trial. This is the power of the testimony of a life that is conformed, that is lived out of our union with Christ. We often assume that circumstances must be just right, before we are to be very effective Christians. But it would probably be harder for you to be a good witness if you had a perfect situation. If you have a very difficult situation like Paul, 
then the integrity of your witness of your union with Christ becomes so much more evident. It becomes, the contrast becomes so obvious to those around you and your character will manifest itself under the adversity as you suffer joyfully living in union with Jesus. The Apostle Peter exhorts all of us saying, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a mischief maker. Yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But under that name, let him glorify God. May the integrity of our lives as we live out of our union with Jesus through difficult circumstances, which we don't even have to point out, may it be an apologetic for the message that we proclaim. May we live in such a way that it's evident to all around us that our life is in union with Christ. The second way that Paul's imprisonment has furthered the gospel is by emboldening the Christians in Rome to preach the word publicly. You can see that in verse 14. He says, Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. A few weeks ago, I was with a a number of you at the Christensen's house after the library book sale. And as part of the festivities hanging out, everyone was reading selections from the books that they had just bought. And there was one selection in particular that was very affecting on everyone. It was obvious that everyone um, was just struck by a certain paragraph. And it was not Rachel's paragraph from Advanced Calculus. <laughs> if any of those of you who were there, do you know, do you remember which selection I'm talking about? It was a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs about a young boy who was, I think, also in Rome, if I remember right, seven years old in Rome, who was tortured and killed for his faith in Christ. And as we read this story, as we heard this story read, the effect on every person around the room as you looked around was interesting. You could see every face around the circle was sobered, and yet you could also tell that every one of us were drawing encouragement and courage and strength from the tale of this young boy. And on the way home, I was reflecting on how strange it is that Christians even have books like Fox's Book of Martyrs. When you think about that, isn't it strange that we have entire books that catalog the tortures and the deaths of our brethren? Why would we do that? I mean, one of the purposes for which governments afflict punishments on people is to deter imitation, right? And it doesn't matter if the law is just or unjust. When, um, Because of our desire for self-preservation, when you see someone being punished for behavior, your normal response is to not want to do that behavior. And yet we have entire books that catalog over and over again people suffering for Christ, being tortured for Christ, for dying for Christ. And you could tell all of us were drawing courage from that. Why is that? Paul's chains, too, had the opposite effect of what you would think. 
like those of us sitting in the room that night, Paul's chains emboldened the Romans to preach Christ. That word, it says to speak the word without fear. That word um, in Greek is to herald, to preach. It's usually translated preach when Paul preaches in the public square. So these people aren't simply confessing that they believe in Jesus to their coworkers or their family. They're probably doing that. But it, it probably means something like street preaching on the corner. These people are going public with the message of the gospel. When they look at Paul's joy and boldness in prison, they see that Christ is worth suffering for gladly. That is, in Paul's joy, they see that everything that they can gain in Christ is worth so much more than anything that they might lose on account of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Paul says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and indeed count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. They see in Paul's life that all that Paul loses, his freedom, his possessions, his ability to to further his mission, was nothing compared to what he gained from his joy of knowing Jesus, of being conformed, to Jesus' life. Why does Paul's example or that of the young boy in Fox's Book of Martyr encourage us? Because their joy and courage is a testimony to the truth of the gospel that we believe. That Jesus really is alive from the dead. If Jesus really is alive from the dead, that means every single one of your sins are forgiven. If Jesus really is alive from the dead, that means that one day you too will rise from the dead and be with Jesus and absolutely nothing can take that from you. Prison can't take that from you. Chains can't take that from you. Torture can't take that from you. Nothing that happens to you can take that from you. And if you see people suffering gladly for the sake of Christ, it emboldens and encourages us because we know that we too believe in the same Christ and we can have the same witness as them. The Philippians, through this letter, they have the example of Paul now. They have the Roman brethren. And and so one of the things we learn is that God sees to it that courage multiplies. It begins with Paul as Paul rejoices in Christ in prison, the Romans are emboldened and it ignites evangelism in the city. Do you see that? But now the Philippians have the example of Paul and the Romans. And now we have the example of Paul and the Romans and the Philippians and everyone in Fox's Book of Martyrs or Trial and Triumph or any of those books. God sees to it that courage multiplies. And so I want to encourage you all, take some time, read through the book of Acts, look at the life of Paul, of a man who counted all loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Read through accounts of the martyrs. Look at modern day accounts from places like Nigeria or China or even here in the United States of those who are suffering for Christ and let it remind you of the reality of the gospel, that Jesus is alive, your sins are forgiven, and that can never be taken from you. As courage multiplies in our congregation, we will be more bold to speak the word of Christ publicly 
without fear. But not all of the gospel preaching that Paul inspired had pure motives. He tells us in verse 16 that some of the preaching was from selfish ambition. Look at that in 16, 15 and 16. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. It's entirely possible to preach that pure gospel from impure motives. Just like it's possible to cast out demons, to prophesy, to do many miracles in the name of the Lord without actually knowing him, which is what Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty two. Jealousy, self-centeredness, the desire for recognition or influence, all of these things still rear their ugly heads in the context of true Christian churches. Remember that Paul told the Corinthians that it didn't matter if someone gave away all of their possessions and even gave over their body to be martyred if they didn't have love. I want you to be emboldened to speak the word without fear publicly, but I want you to know that your motives need to be the love of Christ and love of neighbor. And we really need to consider our own hearts because jealousy, selfish ambition, making a name for yourself These kinds of things do happen even though the true gospel is preached. And I think it is it is obvious that these Romans who were out there preaching were preaching an orthodox gospel and that their doctrine was probably not corrupted because Paul opposed any who distorted the gospel. In Galatians, he says, in Galatians one, seven through nine, he says, There are some who Preach another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed, let him be cut off. So I don't think Paul would have rejoiced in the preaching of these Roman evangelists if their gospel had been distorted or their doctrine had been distorted. But it is, serves as an even higher warning for us that it is entirely possible to preach good doctrine from impure motives. And so be encouraged to be emboldened, but also check your heart. Maybe these rivals despised Paul for his chains and thought that their preaching would gain them new followers and positions of influence among the believers in Rome. Notice in 17 that the contrast with those who preach from love and goodwill and those who preach from selfish ambition is how they view Paul's chains. In verse 17, the latter preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. It seems that the others were preaching glad that Paul was sidelined by his chains while some were preaching knowing that Paul was put there by Christ for the defense of the gospel. Whatever the case, those preaching from impure motives thought that their ministry would afflict Paul, which is a word that means to add pressure. For them, it wasn't enough that Paul was bound. They wanted to press the chains into his flesh. 
Paul's motives, however, were pure. And he could rejoice, it says, that Christ was truly preached, no matter the motive of the preacher. In verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, and yes, will rejoice. Friends, so often we evaluate how things are going, how you're doing, by whether our health is good, if there's money in the bank, if our relationships are harmonious, if life is easy. Happy circumstances tend to give us a sunny outlook on life. But when things go wrong, whether it's with health or others' indifference or even outright persecution, our spirits tend to plummet. We become brittle, irritable. Paul's joy, though, was indexed to something completely different. It was tied to the person at the center of his message, the eternal Son of God in the flesh who died and rose again and for the coming of his kingdom. We should join the Philippians as the apostle invites them to view his trials through their, his eyes and then turn to view our challenges with the same eyes and the same approach that Paul used for evaluating how things were going in his life. This is the same theme that we will pick up on as we move into next time Paul's considerations of how his trial is going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus, that he is alive from the dead and our sins are forgiven in him. We thank you for the advance of your kingdom in our hearts and our lives, that the work that you have begun in us will be completed on the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you even for the trials that you have sent us, and we pray that you would give us grace to live out of our union with Jesus, and that that would be a message to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.